Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. Kristen, Halloween is on Tuesday. Do you still dress up? <laughs> I think it depends. I've been invited to parties the last few years, mm-hmm. so... You know, that that is something that I have partaken in, but previously not not so much. Yeah. I mean, at our age, it's still socially acceptable to get dressed up for a party. Yeah. Not so much to get dressed up and go knock on doors. I'm kind of jealous, though, because I've been buying Halloween candy and I would love to just go door to door and collect some for free. (laughs) (laughs) With inflation the way it is, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'll I'll take some free candy. (laughs) No, exactly. I actually I just looked this up and I think that... According to some reports, we're looking at Real Simple, which is actually a candy brand. They reported Mm. that basically CPI is reporting 13.1%. That's how much candy has rose in just the last year. 13.1%. I'm not sure since Biden has taken over. Yeah, 13.1%. We're talking about like a couple... Maybe a couple dollars, maybe a couple cents. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it depends on what kind of, I mean, if you're buying like the really nice candy bars or you're getting yeah. Smarties. It's yeah. two very different things. Very, very different. But yeah, it, it is fun to look at how much people spend on various things at Halloween. Uh, on candy overall, it is expected that consumers will spend $3.6 billion just on candy wow. alone this year. That doesn't include any other Halloween stuff. But overall, on all of the Halloween, whether it's uh, decor, candy, costumes, the National Retail Federation's annual survey that they conducted and that was reported on by Yahoo Finance concludes that total Halloween spending is expected to reach $12.2 billion. That's pretty good economic stimulation right there. Yeah, I was going to say, what economies would be made up of just the amount that Americans spend on, on Halloween? Like, ser- there are tons oh, wow. of countries, that's most probably in true. Africa. Yeah. But yeah. That, that's the size of their economy, and we're spending it on candy. <laughs> we're spending it on candy and sweet. like fake cobwebs for our butches and skeletons. That's insane. <laughs> also, the Costco, the big Costco skeletons, which are insane. I'm yeah. sure that helps. Yeah. I mean, people have, at least in my neighborhood, people I feel like have gone wild with Halloween decorations this year. So if if you look at the breakdown, Capital One Shopping did a breakdown of average what Americans are spending individually on Halloween. So the average American on their costume is spending $36.84 on candy. They're spending $31.93 on decor. They're spending $34.76. And on greeting cards, just four dollars and 71 cents i don't think i've ever sent a greeting card for halloween you know my grandparents send me one every single year which is i mean they still do it it's so cute that's really cute um, usually it's the same one because there aren't very many options out there <laughs> at adorable. least not for adults that are you know yeah living life <laughs> but hey, consistency it's a beautiful thing the consistency i respect it and i also just respect the effort so thanks grandma grandpa that's that's super sweet but yeah four point four dollars and 71 cents i didn't realize that yeah yeah cards were up that much greeting cards Uh, cards are expensive you know i think the most interesting thing though is how much we as americans spend on pet costumes Ooh, this is it's a lot of money so americans are expected to spend 700 million on halloween costumes for their pets that's according to the national retail federation their annual survey that is a lot of money that we are dishing out for our pets to look 
cute. I love it. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Yesterday, Virginia and I saw on Twitter or X or whatever we want to call it, a dog. He was a chocolate lab dressed up as a s'more. So they took two cardboard box side panel things, made them into graham crackers, put marshmallow pillows in between. They were literally just pillows. And then the little chocolate lab guy with his big wagging tail. Oh, it was so, so cute. cute. That was very cute. That was very, very cute. <laughs> well, for anyone who needs an idea for a costume this weekend, they're headed to a Halloween party. Let's give them some ideas. Yeah, I mean, mine, if Amazon gets it to me on time, is supposed <laughs> to be Barbie, the cowgirl outfit. But And I think Barbie and Ken is supposed to be the most popular mm-hmm. Halloween costume of the year. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing Barbenheimer, so my boyfriend's dressing up as someone from Oppenheimer. That's hilarious. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. really creative. So if you guys do that, send it to us. Yeah. Because I we'll want to see. It on IG. We'll but absolutely share it. That's my hilarious. My backups um, are Britney Spears, because she's yep. been in the news. I got, like, one of those red jumpsuits, so going to do that go. with microphone and that's coming tomorrow for sure and then i bought a flight suit just because i worked at nasa and it's about time <laughs> so you have three options for halloween costumes yeah. you're ready to go Kristen. Yeah. but virginia I'm you've got some impressed. fun well so i i have enjoyed like in college this was probably the most fun i've ever had in a halloween costume if you have a group of friends and you're going to a party dress up as a group of old ladies and it is the funnest thing ever you stay in character all night and you like just have fun acting ridiculous as an old lady that that was a blast if you need a couple costume some of the most creative ideas that i have seen this won a costume competition when i was in college is dressing up like benjamin franklin and his kite so one person is the kite and the other is ben franklin and it's adorable I don't think I don't think anyone from my sister's rotary listens to this podcast, so I'm probably safe to share it. But she and her husband are dressing up as Elon Musk and X, which is super simple because nice. it's just like a black T-shirt and jeans for Elon. And if you have a friend who has a Tesla, maybe they'll let you borrow a car key. Um, or if you're <laughs> blessed enough to own a Tesla, you just carry your car key around <laughs> for Elon. Uh, and then for X, you just have a cardboard box that you paint black and put a big white X over it. I love it. So very simple. Lots of ideas. If you have creative ideas for any of our listeners, let us know. Yeah, send them our way. And if you need an idea but don't want to buy a costume, this is a hot take. Mm. But T-shirt, it doesn't matter what, as long as it's plain. And just take Post-its and make the Wordle board you know that's so my friends did it last year and it was probably the funniest thing but bonus points if you start like by adding some of the letters for wordle i think it's five post-its across and then five down oh my gosh so funny that's brilliant (laughs) that is brilliant. so easy so easy and that's what we like like use things you have at home so you can maybe avoid Spending the average $36.84 that Americans are spending on Halloween costumes. I think that's exactly what I spent on at least one of them. Yes, I'm saying you might be over that. I'm up in the average this year. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on up. All right. Well, Kristen, on today's show, we're actually changing things up quite a bit. We have a little bit of a different plan. What is our plan today? Let us know. I'm super excited. Up on today's Problematic Women, we are changing things up and first giving a brief update on the news from Israel and what we know about the freed hostages and then we are devoting the rest of the show to our problematic woman of the week rebecca markle author of eve in exile the restoration of femininity yeah i had a great conversation with rebecca 
recently and I'm really glad that we get to bring her on today and just let her share about her book. She has this really fascinating journey that she's been through of kind of considering feminism, parsing through feminism. Uh, and so it's going to be fun just to get to dive in and chat with her. Yeah, this is, I mean, especially for you and, and myself, it's hard to navigate this. So yeah. she brings in some really big truth bombs, big perspective. I'm excited. But each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those who those whose views or and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It makes such a difference. All right, let's get to it. Saturday will mark three weeks since Hamas attacked Israel and took more than 200 people, including Americans, hostage. Israel is reportedly still planning a ground invasion into Gaza, but one of the reasons that the invasion is reported to have been delayed is to allow for hostage negotiations to take place. Yeah, we want to see some progress there. And this week we saw, well, with actually within just the past six days, we saw that four female hostages have been freed. Two American hostages were released on Friday. It's a mother and a daughter, 17-year-old Natalie Rannon and her 59-year-old mother, Judith. They were delivered to the hands of Red Cross workers within Gaza, who then drove them to the border with Israel. And they reportedly will be, I actually don't know what we, if we have the latest news on that as far as when they are traveling back to the U.S., but there are reports that they will indeed be coming home. And that's just pretty incredible. No, it, it is incredible. And I think that's a little bit of the confusion here is we have dual citizenship for some of these hostages. And I was listening to ABC News this morning, and it seems as though those with dual citizenship with the, an American passport mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are the ones being prioritized. I think Hamas obviously oh, knows you know, a powerful country when it sees one. But that's kind of been if you look at it they're not necessarily releasing men of fighting age they're no, looking they're at you know the the women children and those prioritized are probably i'm going to assume the american citizens or yeah. dual citizenship but they the those two uh, women they spoke to president biden on the phone after the release per good morning america and we have the clip here That's, that's been long serving. I'm just delighted we're able to get you out. We've been working on it a long time. We're going we're gonna to get them all out, God willing. There, one of the freed women say, I just want to say thank you for your service for Israel, to which Biden responds, that's been long serving. I'm just delighted we're able to get you out. And Biden committed to continuing to try to get the other hostages out. Yeah, so two more hostages then were freed earlier this week. Hamas released two Elderly women on health grounds, Hamas fighters delivered them again to Red Cross workers who transported them to Israel. These two women are 85-year-old Yadved Lifshitz and 79-year-old Nirad Cooper. And Lifshitz, she described the two weeks that she spent as a hostage as hell. She spoke to the to the press at a press conference. Her daughter was translating for her. She said that when she was taken captive, she was hit with sticks by Hamas. And she describes being taken into this network of underground tunnels. We have the clip here from the New York Post. 
there are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. So, I mean, it, it's so sobering. My colleague that I share an office with, Mary Margaret, and she, yesterday, we were sitting in the office and like every hour or so, she was just kind of doing uh, a lot of research on what the situation is right now and um, what we know about the hostages. And she would just kind of groan every so often. And I was like, oh, no, what story are you reading now? And just the the really gut-wrenching stories, the honestly, the pure evil that Hamas is inflicting on the Jewish people, on the hostages, it it really is weighty when you dive into it and you look at it. And I think, you know, there, it's that tension, right, that we've talked about before on the show of, yes, there's a responsibility for us to know and be aware. And also sometimes you do have to kind of take a step back and breathe because the news cycle right now is intense. Like, mm-hmm. This is a really, really weighty moment in not just American history, but in world history. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've seen so many reports where they're saying this is the most violence against Jews since the Holocaust. Let that sink in. The Holocaust. We learn about that in history. We spend a lot of time on it for a reason. It was Mm -hmm. horrible. Mm -hmm. Horrible. And, you know, having been to Germany, they are very conscious about that part of history. Very, very. And never again will it happen because of that. Well, they say never again. We obviously can't predict the future. But I think another really big thing to point out here is I looked at Lifshitz and kind of her uh, background, Mm -hmm. and she was such a peaceful woman. She was Mm -hmm. um, living close to the border. Obviously, that's why she was one of the women taken. And she actually for most of her life, devoted her time to taking people from Gaza. So from that border, they would, she would pick them up, bring them to a hospital, allow for, you know, the hospital treatment to take place, wait for them in a a waiting room for hours and then take them back. So she was committed to Palestinians and really just wanted peace, like just a, a really good woman. And if you watch the video of her being released, she actually turns around uh, shakes the hand of the person releasing her and then says shalom, which beautiful moment. Beautiful. But as as she said, uh, she's describing this moment or this time in the spider web of tunnels as hell. And it yeah. makes you really question, you know, were they actually treated as well as they're saying? Are they worried yeah, probably about... probably not. <laughs> yeah, are they... Are they? But, like, you know what I mean? Are yeah. they saying these things because they're worried about the lives of the other hostages? Absolutely. Because they come out saying, I was treated so well, they were so friendly, I had a doctor, but come on, these guys are terrorists. They're yeah. probably holding a gun to someone's head as she's being interviewed. Yeah. And she knows it. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. No, it's true. It's it's really questionable of, okay, the, the public statements that they're making. Of course, we hope and pray that the hostages are being treated decently, but knowing the brutality of Hamas, it's almost hard to believe. Uh, but we're going to keep you all informed, keep you all updated, keep talking about this because it is, it's such a critical issue. I've said it so many times before. I'll keep saying it at Problematic Women at the Daily Signal. We stand with Israel. And so we want to keep you all up to date and informed just as we continue to watch the situation unfold. Of course, praying, hoping and praying that it is a short conflict, knowing that it might not be. But we we do want to go ahead and transition here to this really interesting conversation. So like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are changing things up and we're going ahead. We're crowning our problematic woman of the week, who is Rebecca Merkel. 
Rebecca Merkel is indeed very problematic. She is the author of Eve in Exile, The Restoration of Femininity. And she shares today her own journey of just kind of thinking about feminism, of processing through the hard questions related to feminism. There's honestly a few things that she says that I disagree with, but I think that's the beauty of having different voices on the show is to get different perspectives. And it's just important to be exposed to different ideas and how different people have reached conclusions that they've reached. So Kristen, without further ado, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Rebecca Merkel after this. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. So I am so excited that we have in studio Rebecca Merkel today. Again, she's the author of Eve in Exile, The Restoration of Femininity. And Rebecca, I'm really excited to get into talking about femininity and the book. But I wanted to start by hearing a little bit of your story. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah. Born and raised in Moscow, Idaho. Love it. Which is little known. <laughs> what What is the largest city that that's close to? Probably Seattle. Oh, wow. You know, oh, wow. in Washington, it's about 300 miles away. And then okay. Boise, Idaho is the capital of Idaho. It's about 300 miles south. So okay. if we wanted to, for instance, shop at the Gap, <laughs> that's something big far. name like that. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to we'd have to commute. So it's a small university town in northern Idaho. It's got the University of Idaho there. Okay. And New St. Andrews College, which is okay. the one I'm involved with. So. Okay. And your alma mater? Yes. Okay. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Indeed. And how did you and your husband meet? You know, I was a student at New St. Andrews College right when it was first started. So that was the first year I was the guinea pig experimental <laughs> student. And he was at the U of I. And yeah, we actually met in a New Testament Greek class that okay. he jumped in on that was being offered at NSA. And yeah, we got married, had five kids. We went to England, lived in Oxford for three years while he did his doctorate. But other than that, I've been in Moscow the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you must like it if you stay. I do. It's a fantastic town. town. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you you genuinely enjoy small town life? And what would you tell people? Would, Would you encourage people like, hey, if you've never tried small town life, you need to give it a try or is it sort of like oh, it's it's not for everyone you know it is well it's probably not for everyone but <laughs> if it was it wouldn't be small town anymore sure. would it that's true <laughs> that's a great point so, <laughs> you know i do i do love it though it's fantastic it's very not anonymous you know yeah. i mean we've got twenty five thousand people so you don't know everyone but you do recognize a lot of people and mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't get away with anything yeah. in a small town. You're yeah. not just a face in the crowd. Which maybe it's a parent is nice. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of people who know my kids and will keep yeah, keeping an eye out. It's fantastic. But also Moscow is a university town, so it's yeah. got a decent-sized university, small sure. town. There is a lot going on, thriving Christian community. Mm-hmm. So That's special. It's, 
it's actually, yeah, we've had friends from the UK visit us and they pulled into town and looked at each other like, what are we going to do for three months? They were coming for the summer. Oh, wow. And after a week, they were like, I don't know if we can fit it all in. Oh, oh <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah, it actually is a really fantastic town that. and it's got a lot going on. So, And how old is your oldest and how young is your youngest child? So we have five who are close together. We were, I think we had, well, we had four under four. And then we had five under six. So now, though, they're all grown and responsible. They're 18 to 25 at the moment. Those are? Wow, they're close together. (laughs) Yes. That's awesome. So we've got a couple in grad school, a couple in college. Three got married within a year. So that was a whole thing. Busy? Yeah, very busy. But super fantastic. Now, when you were in college and starting to think about your career, did you always know, I want to write, I want to publish? You know, I didn't, actually. Mm. I don't think I thought about that. But I did when I was a senior at NSA. You have to do a senior thesis. And mine was on the relationship between theology and treatment of women in various cultures. It was sort of a comparison. So you look at their theology, their doctrine of God, relationship of God to man, and how that's reflected in their cultural traditions of relationship between men and women, which was a very interesting topic. And so I think that kind of stuck with me, and it had always been a topic of interest to me, like Mm -hmm. the women thing, probably especially because when I was in college, it was the 90s, there was this kind of reactionary separatist homeschooling thing going on, which everyone's deconstructing from now. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that bothered me even Mm -hmm. then. You know, it was like a reaction to feminism, but not a good one. Yeah. It was a it was nothing but a reaction. It was like, what do the feminists do? We'll do the opposite, which is a very unthinking response and not a principled or biblical one. So the topic was kind of just always there. And eventually, years later, it turned into a book. So cool. Okay, so as as you begin researching and writing on feminism, first in school and then on your own, what were the holes that you began to see? Because obviously so many people have written about feminism, yeah. talked about it. As women, we love talking about mm-hmm. this issue. Mm-hmm. What were you seeing that was like, oh, I, I think people are missing this or they're right. missing this, and right. I would like to be able to speak into that space? Yeah, I do think is kind of what I was saying, the reactionary thing. Yeah. I think I didn't love what I was seeing on the right mm. in terms of the the hardcore conservatives. Yeah. I remember meeting people who would say, well, we don't need to give our daughters an education because they're just going to be wives and moms. Wow. And I thought, well, that's the most insulting thing to wives and mothers. That's worse than the feminist. Yeah. You know, but the interesting part to me in that was that the reactionary conservatives actually agreed with the primary feminist lie. They just reacted to it emotionally differently. Hmm. So it's like when you have the feminists and the hardcore right both agree that being a wife and mother is a brainless, menial job that takes no talent. So the feminists react out of it, and then the hardcore conservatives, for whatever reason, doubled down into it and said, yeah, it is brainless. That's what we want. But it's actually... On the fundamental principle, they're in agreement. And I just thought that was ironic and tragic at the same time. And yeah. certainly not a lasting solution nope. to the feminist thing. And as, like I said, as we see now, everybody's, you know, coming out of their trauma 
you know, on blogs the yeah. world over. <laughs> it wasn't a lasting solution. And yeah. I do think that actually if you have a high opinion of what it takes to be a wife and mother, what mm -hmm. is that calling? Why does it matter? Rather than it being the thing that you just do if you didn't really ever accomplish anything in life. Yeah, yeah. For you, how does your faith play into your thinking about women's role in the world and feminism and the concepts of women in the home or in the workplace? Right. Well, it's everything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it really is because I'd have no reason not to be a feminist if I wasn't a Christian Yeah. because really, I mean, what possible reason could I have other than <laughs> I, I do think some people get into it kind of like a fetish or something like mm -hmm. it's a weird or it's like a hobby you know some people get into like model trains other people get into homemaking like if you thought of it that way sure but but sure. honestly without without believing that we are created by god for something if evolution is true we can make up our own adventure as we go along you know yeah. we're not created for something we're not designed for something we're just simply the end product of time and chance acting on matter we're bags of protoplasm, so why not just do what makes us happy, you know? Yeah, yeah. We need that foundation, yeah. that grounding, the Absolutely. why. Yeah. So what was your heart when, when you sat down to write Eve in Exile, The Restoration of Femininity? What was on your heart and mind for, okay, I'm going to take a, a lot of time because it takes a lot of time to write a book. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'm going to take a lot of time, a lot of energy yeah. as a mom, balancing life, all right. of that. and. I, I have such a passion and I see such a need that this is worth it to put right. this on paper for other people. You know, I think primarily it was sparked by the Christian feminists hmm. because, you know, the pagan feminists are at least just being consistent <laughs> with their principles. <laughs> you know, they're Fair. doing exactly what they say they're doing. It's the Christian feminists that I think are doing just untold damage to the culture. And explain Christian feminists a little bit for people that just might not be familiar with that world. Yeah, concept. so just the whole trying to go back over scripture's clear teaching and somehow massage it into saying something different. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All the unpopular Paul passages, <laughs> you know. And there's a lot of people who've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to say, well, in the Greek, it doesn't mean this. Or if you were to study Corinthian cultural customs, you would find that, you know, to just try and get out of the plain reading of the text. But my thought is if you don't want to obey it, well, fine. But go find another religion because this one's, you know, it's pretty clear on some of this stuff. And I do think that the culture has been so relentless on the subject of feminism for so long. Like, it's been well over a century that this has been very, very mainstreamed. And I think a lot of Christians have taken a lot of assumptions on board just because it's like osmosis. It's in the air. It's just what we're surrounded by. You can't buy like a pack of Kleenex without it having some little, you know, worldview statement on it. It's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's everywhere. it's everywhere. It is in every commercial, every movie, every TV show. And so I do think a lot of Christians have just taken on a lot of baggage from the world without thinking about it. And I think it's really, it's, it's getting in the way of us being able to combat other cultural problems. So I think the Christians doing a thorough examination of their own assumptions would really 
do a big thing in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I want to let you continue because I kind of cut you off there with that additional question, but just on on your heart of, in writing the book and, yeah. you know, both for, for those who are believers who are Christians, mm-hmm. but also for people, just young women who are trying yeah. to figure out, wow, there's so many thoughts on mm-hmm. culture. There's so many thoughts on feminism. There's so mm-hmm. many thoughts on my role. And, you know, being a mom looks really appealing, but having yeah. a career, there's also incredible beauty in that. And they're just trying to navigate mm-hmm. this current culture of, yeah. of being a woman. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I did try to, in the sort of first half, half of the book, I'm doing like a quick survey of the history of feminism. Like, how did we get where we are now? Yeah. And trying to show that there really was a straight line connection between the first wave feminists and the current catastrophe that Mm. we are looking at in Mm. our culture. Mm. I think it's really easy to say, well, the first wave feminists, they were great. But after that, things went off the rails or, or whatever. But this has been a godless project for a very long time. So anyway, I kind of do a quick survey over that so you can sort of see how did we get where we are today. And despite the fact that there were things the feminists did get right over the years, that doesn't mean that their project was a good project or that we should have signed off on it. And then the second half of the book, I think, is just trying to actually cast a vision of what are we supposed to do? Because too often the sort of response to feminism is here's a list of the things you may never do mm-hmm. rather than, well, what are we for? <laughs> you know, yeah. what what is our calling? What is the thing God designed us for? And how is that a high calling and a glorious one and a effective one? Mm-hmm. Not It's not a way to keep women out of the real world. Mm-hmm. It's actually very much the real world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, I think it, it's easy to focus on the thou shalt nots. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And a lot of people have. Yeah. And then you just feel depressed at the end of it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like, well, I guess I'll go in the corner and do something not important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of that that larger overarching question in a minute. But I want to mention Emma Waters, who we've had on this show many times. Um, She has just praised you and your book. And she says that, you know, it's one of of her favorite books on the subject of feminism. And this is her quote. She says that in the book, you managed to affirm the angst and airs of the 1950s housewife while persuasively arguing that women should not throw the baby, meaning the home, out with the bathwater. This is a tricky line to walk. How did you achieve walking that line? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I think that was the kind of interesting thing about just looking at the progression of thought Mm. and the sort of cultural moment that you know, feminism unfolded in the middle of. You had the sort of first wave feminists were fighting for one thing. Then we have like World War, you know, break for that. And then post-World War II, it was like feminism had just kind of gotten put on the simmer burner for a Mm -hmm. little bit, right? But also there was this huge leap in standard of living, technology, what it meant to be in the home. Everything was becoming much easier for a housewife. And it was like women sort of settled into, we're just here to be pretty and keep the house pretty. And that's what we do. And it didn't take very long before they got incredibly bored of that. Mm-hmm. And it's because I do think that that is a very unbiblical, I mean, the feminist thing is unbiblical, but so is the notion that women are just decorative. They're not meant to do anything particular. They just sort of exist, you know to be pretty to look at or whatever. And so I think it it 
initially probably was a little bit fun. And then it got really boring really quick. And <laughs> I think that you can see the same exact thing happen right after the Industrial Revolution. Life gets easier. Then you get that sort of Victorian moment where women become merely decorative again. Mm -hmm. And then you get first wave feminism. And then Second World War happens, standard of living jumps, everything's different, women become decorative, then you get second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. Because I do think it's like a super predictable response to women descending into you don't really do much, you just kind of exist and you just get your hair done and you just... You know, like like that's yeah. not a meaningful existence. And I do think it's super clear if you look at the Bible, like women were created to work, mm-hmm. to be productive, to take over this planet, right? I mean, Adam was given a huge job. It was obvious that he was not sufficient for the task, and he was given Eve. Mm-hmm. So right from the very beginning, women were made to be productive and to work. Mm-hmm. And I think when you take a woman who's made for something else and you just— make her stuff it and become just docile and pretty Mm -hmm. and that's it end of story she's gonna just blow up yeah right and i think (laughs) the whole country just blew up and so i think when betty friedan published the feminine mystique and she's talking about how miserable everyone was Mm -hmm. everyone really jumped on that like it really resonated with women and you could look at all those idyllic little pictures of you know, sort of the leave it to beaver and we're going on family vacations. But to be honest, I think that was the women's fault 100% Hmm. because they took a massive blessing and they did not turn a profit on it. Hmm. Like they were given so much and then they just sat there and then they got bored. Yeah. And it's like, well, who are you blaming for that? Hmm. You know? Hmm. So I, I think if women had responded obediently to the gifts that were given, in the middle of the last century, hmm. rather than just descending into a lazy approach. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. I, I don't think it was, nobody was oppressing them into it. It was probably really fun for a minute. What What do you think that would have looked like? Because I, I know that there are people thinking, well, but, you know, weren't, weren't women being told, well, that's a man's job and you need to be in the home. And so so what what should have been in, in your mind? What should have been the response? The response. Well, I think that basically, if you think that the home was women's domain, okay, they're the ones who decided to reduce it to just this simple little hmm. thing. Right. I don't think you could probably find a single footnote of men telling women, here's your list of, you know, like this is what you have to do. There's a lot of women's magazines telling women, you know, you see those like little scare articles that go by about like advice for women. Yeah. You know, like those are women's magazines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is this is something women treated themselves to. And in the book, I do use the example of like imagine that there is a guy who you know, made millions in tech or something by the time he's 24. So he just retires Mm -hmm. at 24. Mm -hmm. And then he just plays video games. You know, probably for a minute, that'd seem really fun. You know, he buys the house with a pool. He's got a hammock, plays video games. It's great. He will be bored out of his mind after a minute. And I think that that is what women did Mm -hmm. is like suddenly you have all of the resources at your fingertips. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got fridges, you've got stoves, you're not pulling water out of the well in a bucket. You know, there's so many things that you have. And rather than turning a profit on it Mm -hmm. in some way, they just, it was like they kept the bar at the same Mm -hmm. place, which meant that it took a lot less 
to run the household. And it was probably amazing right at first. I mean, I talked to my mother-in-law who, who grew up in southern Idaho. I mean, this is, gosh, not even at the beginning of the last century because yeah. she's just my mother-in-law. And her mom had to go haul water out of a bucket, wow. you know, with a bucket and wow. bring it wow. into the house and all that kind of thing. You know, so imagine just having the luxury yeah. of the appliances and everything. You would just want to lay down and put your feet up and have a great time. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to get bored and you're going to feel sorry for yourself and you're going to feel oppressed. And why can't I do anything important? Mm -hmm. But I do think that that was something that women could have raised the bar for Mm -hmm. themselves but Mm -hmm. didn't. Mm -hmm. And then they they felt like I think it was a misplaced blame. They thought it's the house. It's the home. That's the thing that's holding me back. So they ran out to get careers. And cut off the house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. The throwing the baby out with bathwater. Yeah. So that kind of draws us to this larger question that that you ask in the book and say we need to wrestle with, which is what did God make real women for? Right. Is there a one answer that we can give to that? Because that sounds like a, a huge question to yeah. ask. Yeah. Well, it is a huge question, and it definitely can't have a one-size-fits-all answer. And yeah. I do think that's the thing, like, back in the 90s. People, you know, for whatever reason, I think they were probably motivated by trying to be obedient. But as soon as it gets reduced to a simple checklist, (laughs) you know it's not very biblical, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If it becomes like grind your own grain, you have to make your own soap, you whatever, like that was the 90s thing. (laughs) You know, now there's a slightly modified list, but it's similar in many ways because it's it's a man-made checklist. And I do think, (laughs) I always think it's funny. One of the ways you can tell, I think, that the Bible is inspired by God is that if it had been men writing it, it would have been a checklist. It really would have, because we are so drawn to that. And if you think about God gives us principles that actually turn out to be applicable on every continent, in every century, for every Christian woman. And because, you know, like the command to be modest, if that had been cooked up by humans, we would have had an inch's length for togas, you know, (laughs) which would have suddenly been obsolete when we're not wearing togas anymore. But Actually, the way the command is framed, yeah. it's it's applicable no matter where you are. So true. And I think the same goes for the commands to women, the teaching on what women are for. It's going to look different in different continents mm-hmm. and different centuries or different parts of the country or city versus country. It's going to look different, but the principle is the same. Mm-hmm. And so I just I, I do think it's a beware of the checklist man, mentality, but that doesn't mean that there's not a clear command, that there's not clear teaching on it. It's clear, but it's not simple, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So what would be your encouragement then for for women who are in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s today, and they're just navigating where we are culturally Mm -hmm. and the tugs and the pulls? Mm -hmm. I Honestly, I've said this so many times, but I think as as women today, if you choose to stay home, be a stay-at-home mom, mm-hmm. you're going to be judged by one group of people. If you choose, I'm going to I'm going to work full-time mm-hmm. and I'm going to get a nanny for my kids or put them in daycare, you're going to be judged by another group of people. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of have to be okay with that and, you know, have to say, okay, mm-hmm. I don't care what people think. I'm going to do what right. I feel like the Lord is calling me to do. But there is a, a, a challenge to navigating where we are in yeah. this culture. What yeah. is your encouragement to young women? I think the first thing would to be really brutally honest with yourself on how much of the world's agenda have you bought 
and it's kind of like if you've ever tried to like eliminate gluten or something and you have to suddenly start looking at labels Mm -hmm. and you suddenly realize it's everywhere Mm -hmm. and you're like how is it possibly in my cheese you know (laughs) (laughs) or whatever but it is yeah I think the the secularist worldview is everywhere and mm-hmm. I think that it would do women a lot of good to start reading the labels on their own assumptions mm-hmm. and seeing wait have I bought into something because like I said earlier it it is just inundating us from every side it has been the case for over a century and so there's so many different facets of this and I'm certainly not opposed to women having jobs or earning paychecks or anything like that. So set that all aside. I think the primary thing that we should notice is that for over a century, there has been a concerted effort to make everyone despise the role of wife and mother. Mm. And I'm not saying there are, any, there are not other important roles, but that seems to have been worth a lot of effort on the part of the secularists. And so if you think about it just in terms of like a war, (laughs) imagine you've got one nation throwing all of their resources at some target of the enemy. You know, all of their manpower, all their money, all their ammunition, everything is going there. I think we could assume that that's probably an important target. Mm. You wouldn't assume, ah, that's probably a needless little bridge somewhere that nobody cared about. It's like that matters. Obviously that target matters. And the fact that we have had this much investment in despising the role of a woman in the home tells me that that's an important and strategic place for a woman to be. Mm. Because the enemy clearly cares that we not go there. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And I think that we have bought the fact that, like, we've bought the lie in a lot of places. Because there's a lot of women who do it, but they're embarrassed by it Mm -hmm. because they feel like it's insignificant. They feel like it's embarrassing. They feel like, you know— and I, I would just urge women to whatever else you're doing, and God may be calling you to lots of things, but check your assumptions on that. Because mm-hmm. I think it is a far more strategic and far more powerful place for a woman to be than almost any other place. Mm-hmm. And God has not called every woman to it. And there's so many exceptions, and I would never want to get blanket statementy about it. Mm-hmm. But I think we can see the enemy cares about it. And so, and then you look at scripture and it seems that God also cares about it. So I would say if you have a sort of emotional reaction to it, or if you feel like you can't tell me I have to, you know, whatever, check the label, yeah. you know, read the, read the fine print on that label in your mind. Why are you reacting to it the way you are? And I think it's probably the case that those assumptions are in a lot more areas of our life than we think that they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I encourage all of our listeners, pick up a copy of Eve in Exile, The Restoration of Femininity by Rebecca. And Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today and just sitting down and unpacking this with us and sharing your heart. Well, thank you for having me. It's fantastic to be here. Oh my gosh, of course. Any, Any other books coming out anytime soon? I should. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've told my publisher I will. <laughs> so surely that counts for something. There you go. <laughs> well, if and when, we would yeah. love to have you back on. Thank you very much. All right. Well, with that, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We're across all the platforms. 
And like we said at the beginning, if you guys have a costume, a couple's costume, a dog costume, preferred dog costume, (laughs) send them our way on Problematic Women. We have an Instagram page and and just we want to see the creativity. Yes, we sure do. (laughs) We sure do. So if you're dressing up, let us know. But in the meantime, have a great week and a wonderful Halloween. Mm -hmm. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.